Church will continue now to worship the Lord through the teaching of his word and, and to get you to, to process where this text goes because, uh, again, we, we kind of, Paul's jumping around here and Luke as he's writing and recording history is, is introducing different thoughts to us. But I want to take you back to 1992. Uh, I was a sports fan. I grew up a, a fan of all sports. I even watched Wimbledon. I know nothing about tennis, but I even watched Wimbledon back in the day. And, but the Olympics in my house were a big deal. Like if the Olympics were on, my whole family watched. That's just what we did. And back in 1992, uh, there was a guy named Derek Redmond. I don't know if you guys remember Derek Redmond or not, but he was a projected gold medalist. This guy was the top of his field. He was in peak condition. He came in the favored gold medalist in the 400 meter and as he is entering the last turn, he is leading by a landslide. I mean, he is running away with the race. All the cameras are on Derek Redmond, and all of a sudden, he straightens up, reaches back, grabs his leg, and goes crashing to the ground like an airplane that crashed. I mean, he hit and rolled and tumbled. It wasn't a small fall. I mean, this guy really crashed. And he tried to get back up, and as he tried to get back up, he simply could not walk. His injury was more devastating than what they anticipated. They thought maybe it was a muscle tear. Uh, it was a tear, all right. His hamstring actually separated from the bone in the back of his leg. His hamstring actually detached from the bone itself. And so literally, he could not cause his leg to contract. And so he starts crawling towards the finish line, keeping in mind the race is now officially over. Everybody has crossed the line other than Derek. As he's trying to crawl, all of a sudden a man comes down from the stands. And initially, the folks who saw him, like the commentators, were very alarmed. Hey, there's a guy running at Derek Redmond, and they didn't know what this man was going to do. As it turns out, it was Derek Redmond's father. His dad comes out, and his dad lifts him up and supports him, and, and the two cross the finish line together. Of course, in case you don't know, with Olympic rules, he was DQ'd. He was disqualified because you can't have assistance and getting across, and yet it didn't matter because all the other Olympians, if y'all don't remember back to 1992, I know we're going back, all the other Olympians, though, lined up and they greeted him. Like, literally, everybody else who competed with him, the stands just erupted, man. They just exploded with just recognition. And when they awarded the medals, when they awarded the medals, the guy who won the gold had Derek Redmond stand with him. It was the first time they had ever seen that. And he didn't give it to him, but he had him stand with him. And so it was just one of those things where when they interviewed him later, his comments were simply this. You know, Derek, you know, with that type of injury, facing that type of pain and that obstacle, that hindrance, how do you finish? How, how did you finish the race? No kidding. This is what he said. I just kept putting one foot in front of the other one. And literally, it was the same foot because he couldn't move the other. It was just one foot and one foot. And one foot, and that's exactly how he finished the race. I share that with you because we're going to talk about that same strategy in the life of Paul and Silas. Remember when we left them last? Supernatural miracle has taken place. The, the use of words that Luke applies in his writing lets us know that this earthquake that happened in Philippi wasn't just any, any earthquake. And then there's a part of the text I'm not going to read today, but it's important for you to understand where we're going with today's text. There was this little segment that happened right after that. All of a sudden, the officials there, they didn't go after Paul and Silas to re-imprison them because somebody had cued them into the fact that Paul and Silas were both Roman citizens. And in case you don't know, they did not give Paul and Silas a trial. They beat them without a trial and threw them in prison, and you couldn't do that within the Roman Empire. That was illegal. And so we've got a big issue now. 
Now we've got these two dudes that we said were Jewish men, and we have mistreated them, yet they turn out to be Roman citizens. Man, they can get us kicked out of our seats. These politicians now are very apologetic. They come to Paul and Silas, oh, we're so sorry. And Paul said, no, that's not good enough. Did you see my back? That's not good enough. Y'all are going to walk us out of this town. And that's exactly what happened. These politicians had to walk them out. But this is where our one step in front of the other picks up because now they continue in what we would call the second missionary journey. They go from there and they're going to head to to a couple other smaller places. They go to the big metropolitan area of Thessalonica, to Berea. But every place they go, church, here's the point I want you to focus in on. Every place they went, there was trouble. Every place they went, there was a hindrance. Every place they went, there was some type of struggle. There was some type of obstacle. And they went to place after place after place after place. This is what we see Paul and Silas do. They got back up and they kept putting one foot in front of the other one. They kept taking step after step after step. And as they took those steps, as they remained faithful to those tasks, what we see then is this teaching type lesson for us as we start to understand that everybody in this room, listen, you you, you wouldn't have to go very far. But everybody in this room came in here today with some type of struggle. I don't know if it's a struggle against ongoing sin. I don't know if it's some type of issue with anxiety or fear or stress. I don't know if it's physical with some type of diagnosis. I don't know if it's emotional through the loss of a loved one. I don't know if it's discontent in your world right now. Every one of us in this room has some type of struggle. But yet what we see in the life of Paul and Silas is a great teaching point for us. That in spite of our struggles, what we're supposed to do as a Christ follower is not be a victim in the midst of our struggle, because that's what the rest of the world does. My life is hard, so I just quit. Or I play the victim card, and I want to pat myself on the back, and I want you to feel sorry for me. And yet, here's what God demands of us, is that we keep getting back up and putting one foot in front of the other. Because if there's one promise Jesus made, it was this, you're going to have lots of struggle. Various types, meaning there's going to be all sorts of struggle, emotional, physical, financial. You're going to have them all. And yet here's what I expect of my followers. Just as my son did as he carried a cross virtually unconscious down the Via Della Rosa. As he walked with your cross, he kept putting one foot in front of the other and he remained faithful to the task. So this morning I want to challenge you that as we go through this text, I want you to listen to the text, but I also want you to envision yourself in your journey. I I literally want you to do this. I want you to take the text And I want you to envision yourself, not where Paul and Silas were, but I want you to envision yourself where you are. And I want you to think about your struggle. Again, sin, physical health, emotional health, discontent, just unhappy with your job, struggles within family and your marriage. I I don't know what it is. But I want you to envision yourself in your struggle, and I want us to come to some conclusions what we're supposed to do about that today. I want us to listen to this text. I want us to learn I want us to be better in our journey today and tomorrow than what we have been this last week. So pray with me. Let's get our minds ready to study the Word and and worship the Lord as we learn. Father, impart to us today your wisdom promised to us in the book of James, that as we read this text, Lord, that we can grasp and understand what Paul and Silas, Luke and Timothy were seeing and were going through. In fact, Luke writes it in first person. He's there. He's watching. He's seeing. He's hearing. So Father, I want you to help us as we're learning and seeing this text, to also envision our own context, our own journey in life. Whatever the struggle, the hindrance, the difficulty is that we're facing, that we're we're trying to climb over, that we're trying to push to the side or go around, whatever that struggle is for us right now, Father, I pray that you would take this text and you would so impart it to us with your wisdom. 
that we would start to see solution, not obstacle. That, Father, we would start to see an alternate route. We would develop a strategy. And that, Father God, we as your people would be those that get up and put one foot in front of the other one until you call us home. Let us be those people based on what we read here today. And we will give you all the praise, all the glory. We voice this collectively in Christ's name. All of God's people said, amen. So read with me out of chapter 17. After they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and I've given you a map to kind of show you. Uh, remember our study started over here at Antioch of Syria. I know that you see an Antioch of Galatia up here in Asia. Uh, I get all of that. That's Antioch Pisidian. And so two different Antiochs, but the launching church is over here in Syria. We've now traveled, if you don't remember, it was 300 miles from Jerusalem to Antioch. So now think about Antioch all the way up to Philippi, thousands of miles that they have traveled. So this is not like an overnight journey. These missionary journeys would take years for them to complete. And so they're leaving Philippi. They got the escort to the gate because they had been wrongly beaten. They've gone to Amphipolis, Apollonia, and now this is where our text picks up. They came to Thessalonica. In case you don't know, I know it looks like a dot on the map, but Thessalonica was a city of 200,000 people. So we're talking about a major city. Uh, about 2,400 here in Forsyth, so that gives you an idea. A city of about 200,000 people. That would have been a mega, mega city back in those days. So lots and lots of culture, lots and lots of different religions. Uh, and Paul, again, is going to go there. Uh, he traveled, in case you know anything about your geography here, Paul would have traveled what was known as the Via Agnation. Uh, that was the major east-west road in the Roman Empire. Here's what made it great for spreading the gospel there was Roman military all up and down that roadway. So it was very protected. You didn't have to worry about invaders. You didn't have to worry about barbarians. This was a very, very civilized area. And so that made for great spread of the gospel, except when the other obstacles would show up. And trust me, the other obstacles are about to show up. As usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the Scripture. Uh, the key word there, if you underline or highlight, is as usual, Ethiopia. Ethioia. It's a word in Greek that actually refers to a strategy, a plan. So, so Paul didn't just show up and go, you know what, I'm just going to walk down the street and I'm just going to tell people in Thessalonica, this city of 200,000, I'm just going to start talking about Jesus. No, he had a strategy. And, and, and let me go ahead and use this as a teaching point now. If you're battling an ongoing sin, if you've got an issue within your marriage, if you've got some discontent in your job, you need to figure out a strategy. You've got to come up with a plan, because if you aim at nothing, that's exactly what you hit. You want to achieve something and keep walking one foot in front of the other, you've got to make sure you're walking in the right direction. And so you've got to have a strategy. So Paul had an as usual. He would show up and he would go to the synagogue. Why? They know the Old Testament. So if I'm going to talk about Messiah, I'm going to start with some people who know the Old Testament, so I don't have to teach them everything. And so he's got a strategy. You need to have a strategy. If you've got a same ongoing sin and you're still battling the same ongoing sin, then you don't have the right strategy. You've got to come up with a different plan. We've got to get something where we've got commonality with other people so we can get some help coming out of those same sin patterns or same issues within our marriage, same difficulties at work. So notice three days, that's a number of certainty. So he didn't just show up and reason with them one day. He was able to defend his faith and he did it over three days because remember, if you're staying long enough to be there for three days, they're going to ask you questions. And so he's got answers as to what he believes. Let me challenge you as another teaching point here. 
you don't have to know every theological feature of Scripture. You don't have to understand fully every doctrine. You should make it your goal to try to do so. But here's what every Christian needs to be able to do. You need to be able to defend exactly what you believe. Every Christ follower should be able to defend exactly what you believe. So if I sat down with you, not to argue with you, but, but I wanted you to open my mind, so to speak. And that's what we're going to talk about. That's the wording Luke uses. If I wanted you to open my mind to the reality of Jesus, would you be able to explain that? Would you be able to defend to somebody else what you really believe? How you really, Could you turn to the text? Could you turn to the pages and show people that's a challenge for all of us as Christ followers? That does not require a seminary degree. It just requires a lot of elbow grease, a lot of hard work of you sitting down and taking a notepad and studying, like if if I wanted to explain to my next-door neighbor or to my brother or to my sister, if I really wanted to tell them what I believe, where would I even start? You need to have a strategy, a plan. You need to be able to defend your faith. And so this is what Paul does. He goes and he defends. But notice in verse 3 what his goal was. Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. The word explain, dianigo, in Greek, literally means to open up their mind. He wasn't arguing. He wasn't, he wasn't trying to sway them. See, here's the thing I want you to understand. Your job is not to sway somebody into following or believing in Jesus. Your job is to simply open up their mind with the information about Jesus. The Bible makes it clear. Faith is a gift. Here's the thing. You don't have it. You have your own faith, but you don't have faith to give to somebody else as a gift so they can believe and follow Jesus. Your job is not to sway or convince somebody to follow Jesus. Your job is just to make them know about Jesus. So all we are is the pathway. So this is all Paul was trying to do. I'm going to go and reason with them. I'm going to open up their minds to the fact that the Messiah must suffer. You know why that was vital, right? Because, see, the Jews struggled with the fact that Jesus would have died on the cross because that's not the Messiah they wanted. Here's the Messiah they wanted. See, Peter even struggled with it. Judas struggled with it. They wanted the Messiah that's going to be the second coming Jesus. Y'all know when Jesus comes back the second time, it's different, right? He doesn't ride in on a donkey. He comes back on a white horse, and it's not a donkey. And he doesn't come with palm fronds. He comes with a sword because the Bible says when Jesus comes The next time, it's to set things right. Well, see, that's what the Jews were waiting on. And yet, this Jesus gets hung on a cross. And so Paul says, wait a minute, you're you're bypassing our own scriptures. If you go back and read the book of Daniel, you know what the book of Daniel calls the Messiah? He calls him the suffering Savior. And and so that's all Paul would do. He would go and he said, I don't want to argue with you. I just want to open your minds to what the Bible already says. You know this, but you're overlooking it. So so let me tell you why Jesus had to suffer and why that makes him the Messiah, because the Scriptures say Messiah had to suffer. Again, you need to be able to defend that. Let's say you were sitting down with your next-door neighbor, and that person's a Jewish person. They're going, I don't believe Jesus is Messiah. Why would you even say that? Well, you, you do agree that Jesus died on the cross, right? Yeah, because most will not deny that historically. Most have accepted that historically. And then you go back and you go back to the book of Daniel. Man, your own prophet, your own prophet Daniel said he had to suffer and die. That was a fulfillment of prophecy. That's you saying, hey, prophecy in the defense of my faith is the same. And so Paul is just simply opening up their minds. Notice the result of this. Again, he didn't sway them, but some of them were persuaded. Um, That's not a bad term, but the term that's actually there in Greek is pitho. How many of you remember the the old hymn, Trust and Obey? Yeah, y'all remember that? Trust and obey, for there's no other way. They should have stopped it and changed the words right after that. And you're like, wait a minute. Because what does it say after that? 
to be happy in Jesus. Trust and obey is not about happiness, it's about salvation. If you want to be saved in Jesus, you have to do trust and obey. The word pitho literally means trust and obey. You do understand, you cannot give anybody trust. Parents, you can pray for your kids to trust, but you cannot give them trust. Trust is the same word we would translate as faith. You can't give them faith. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, that is a gift from God. All you can do is pray for God to give them faith and for them then to take that gift of faith and that lead to obedience. That's this word. Paul didn't sway them. God saved them. But what did Paul do? He opened up their minds. He taught them. And so our job is not the result of salvation. Salvation are not our goal. That is God's goal. Our goal is to make sure we open up people's minds to the teachings of Jesus. Then God does the salvation part. Trust and obey. Pitho. And so there were people there who trusted and obeyed. And notice this. They joined Paul and Silas. Okay, please hear me. Um, If you say you're a Christ follower and you have no relationship to a local church and you tell me you and Jesus are okay, I'm going to call you a liar and that's going to make you mad. But then I'm going to pull out the Scripture and say, you're a liar. Because you and Jesus are not okay if you have nothing to do with the local church. You're not. Notice what it said. That when they trusted and obeyed, they immediately aligned themselves with other believers. Immediately. There was no delay. And you're like, well, well, that's not the local church. Well, yes, it is. That's exactly what Paul's planning right here is the church. So they immediately affiliated themselves with other believers. If you and Jesus are okay, it's not just you and Jesus, it's y'all and Jesus. That's the relationship. It's us and Jesus together. There is a local body affiliation. Now, again, whether that's First Baptist Church or some other church, that's completely between you and the Lord, but there's got to be a church in there. That is the relationship. It's designed to be a body, not simply an individual. And so, again, the, the Bible's very clear. But notice who they were. It was a large number of God-fearing Greeks as well as a number of leading women. We're going to talk about the leading women in just a minute. Luke mentions that twice. A God-fearing Greek, that means somebody who has not converted to Judaism, yet they worship Yahweh. So so what they have not done is they have not gone through circumcision. They don't keep the dietary restrictions. They don't keep the cleansing restrictions. However, they believe in the God of the Old Testament, our, our Father God. And so they worship Yahweh. They just have not converted religiously to Judaism. And so you've got these people being swayed. Notice not a ton of Jews. It's more of the God-fearing Greeks that are being swayed because the Jews you're going to see in just a minute, they're, they're taking the hostile rejection approach. Verse 5, but the Jews became jealous. And they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. A couple key thoughts there. Number one, what is jealousy biblically? The word for jealousy is zilo'o, and zilo'o means to set one's heart upon. But here's what it always implies. It means on the wrong thing. So you set your heart on it, but it's not the right thing you're setting your heart on because what it implies is that it belongs to somebody else. All right, so, so I set my heart on a spouse that's not my spouse. I, I'm jealous then. What it is, I'm jealous that some other person has that spouse. I set my heart on somebody's, somebody else's position, their recognition, their power, their authority, whatever it may be, this jealousy. What it is is you're setting your heart on the wrong thing. And that's all jealousy is. When you set your heart on the wrong thing, it creates a discontent within us. And that discontent has at its very root this idea of jealousy, zilo'o. I'm desiring the wrong thing. And the wrong thing can be multiple things. And so notice the Jews here, 
What is it they've set their heart on? Well, they've set their heart on the fact, hey, you're taken away from our people. Uh, um, these people, these God-fearing Greeks, notice it said they were leading women. These were prominent people. You're, you're, you're taking some of our prominent people away, and they're starting to, to follow you. Noticing, again, it really wasn't about the following of Yahweh. It was how they were perceiving themselves. You're making us less powerful. You're, le- you're making us less recognized. You're, you're taking what we think is ours. Y- y'all, y'all do know this, right? Nobody in this church belongs to First Baptist Forsyth. Everybody in this church belongs to the Lord. There's no ownership here. Nobody here. Your, your name may be on the membership roll, and it may have been here 40, 50 years, but you don't belong to First Baptist Church Forsyth. You belong to Jesus. There's no ownership. And, and so there was a jealousy, there was a misplaced thing. But notice what it said they did. Uh, it said that they caused a riot. It's not a riot like we would think of in our culture. See, when I think of riot, I've worked a couple of riots, no kidding, I worked two in Memphis. Uh, in Memphis when they had a riot, you know, like they, they threw stuff, broke stuff, turned over cars, burnt stuff. That's a riot. Like it's truly illegal and destructive. That's not this word. This is cause a, a, an emotional uproar. So, so this means they just got people fired up. It's like a negative pep rally. They got out there, and because of their jealousy, they're telling some false things. They get people's emotions all fired up. But they're not really tearing anything up at this point. Now, it's, it's going to get a little more destructive, but at this point, they're not really tearing stuff up. And so they go out, and notice what it leads to. They were attacking Jason's house. They searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. Now, let me go ahead and tell you about Jason. We know nothing about him. Yeah, that's, that's about what I can tell you. We know nothing about Jason. His name appears out of nowhere. There's no extra biblical record about him. Like, we don't have anything written anywhere else about Jason. Here's what's apparent about Jason, though. He was obviously a Christ follower. We're going to see in just a minute he was a Greek because he kind of gets a trial. So he, he was obviously a Roman citizen. They didn't just beat him and throw him in jail like they did Paul and Silas, incorrectly, by the way. But, but Jason must have been housing them. Paul and Silas, Luke, Timothy, they must have been staying at Jason's house. That's why the people go there, because they're going to try to run them out of Dodge, try to get rid of them. And so here's what they do in verse 6. When they didn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here too, and Jason has welcomed them. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, and then there's a hyphen, meaning he's named Jesus. Uh, Here's the deal. Once again, they're lying. These men are not causing any uproar. Luke is very clear. Who were the only people causing the uproar? The jealous ones. These folks aren't, Paul and Silas aren't causing an uproar. And and so the jealous ones are causing the uproar, but they're going to point the finger at Paul and Silas like they're the ones that are causing it. You do understand that's kind of the blame game? Like I'm the one causing the issue, but I'm going to blame everybody else for me causing the issue? Well, that's exactly what's taking place. And then the other thing they said was also, also incorrect. They were not teaching anything contrary to what Caesar had decreed. Remember, they're viewed as Jews, and Jews could proselytize. So if you're talking about your own Messiah as a Jew, that is not illegal. So they're not teaching anything that's illegal. They haven't caused a riot, and they're not teaching anything illegal. And so again, these are all lies. So the jealousy then leads to other sins on top of the jealousy. The crowd and city officials who heard these things were upset. After taking a security bond, if you've ever wondered where our bonding system in the U.S. comes from, believe it or not, it dates all the way back to Rome. Rome was that civilized of a nation. They had a bonding system. If there was a charge against you and someone could bond you out, you didn't get imprisoned. That's exactly how the system works. 
here in the States as well. And so he had an official trial. So, so Jason gets an official trial. He gets bonded out instead of having to go to prison. Verse 10, as soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Upon arrival, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Okay, so here we go again. Here's our alternate plan. All right, so, so we've gone from Philippi. We got beaten and thrown in jail. We go over to Thessalonica. The Jews come after us again. Now they want to kill us. So we're going to go down to Berea. So, so it's an alternate plan, but we don't change the strategy. What did they do when they got to Berea? Straight to the synagogue. Why? Because we're going to tell people about Jesus again. We're going to try to open up their minds. We're not trying to sway. We're just simply trying to open up their minds to what the truth actually is. The people there were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, since they received the word with eagerness and examined the Scriptures daily to see if any of these things were so. Consequently, many of them believed, including a number of the prominent Greek women as well as men. And so, so Luke says, the people here, notice, notice what he said, not the people there, the people here, so that means he's right there. So, so Luke's with them. He says, so the people here, they're of much more noble character. The word that's used there really doesn't mean noble character. It means more open-minded. In case y'all don't know about Berea, uh, if, if you remember our little map, you know, we go from Philippi and we go over to Thessalonica, and then to Berea. So we're still headed westbound, and we're about to make a circle. Berea was a philosophical capital. Lots of philosophers in Berea. So they're very open-minded. And so Paul gets over there, and he starts talking in the synagogue about Jesus, and they're very open-minded. Sure, well, tell us, why is this Jesus the Messiah? And he goes through all of his explanation. Notice what happened. Consequently, as a result of him opening up their minds, you have God saving people once again. Notice, however, this is the second time the Greek women are mentioned. Luke does so because Greek women were viewed completely differently than Hebrew women. Remember, Hebrew women were literally one step above livestock. No kidding. In their culture, they were considered property. So, so for a Hebrew male, his wife was no different than property. Not in the Greek culture. Greek women were very liberated. In fact, you had Greek politicians who were female. You had Greek queens who were as powerful as kings. I mean, they were very, very influential. Get this. They were also, many of them, very wealthy. And some of these wealthy Greek women become the foundational people who sponsor church activities. They became Christ followers, and God used their influence to start to fund the spread of the gospel. So women were very influential in the spread of the gospel in the Greek culture. But when the Jews from Thessalonica, okay, so man, we, we, we came up with an alternate plan. We've left Thessalonica, go to Berea. But the Jews back over here, here, so here comes my struggle once again. They found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul at Berea. They came there too, agitating and upsetting the crowds. Then the brothers and sisters immediately sent Paul away to go to the coast. But Silas and Timothy stayed on there. Those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving instructions for Silas and Timothy to come to him as quickly as possible, they departed. So here we go. Start out at Philippi. We get beat like a pulp. Everything has to shake to break me free. Finally get an apology. Go to Thessalonica. They want to kill me. Leave Thessalonica. Go to Berea. Here it comes from Thessalonica. Back to Berea. And Paul and Silas said, that's it. I'm out of here. I quit. No, that's not what they did. What did they do? They got back up, and they kept putting one foot back in front of the other one. They kept putting one foot back in front of the other one. Back when I was about nine or ten years old, uh, I remembered this so vividly and clearly as I was prepping this text this week, uh, I was just starting my deer hunting career. I started hunting at the age of six. Y'all, I grew up in the country. And so I was squirrel hunting and rabbit hunting at the age of six. 
uh, by nine, my dad had me doing some serious deer hunting. And most of the time, we still hunted, meaning in stands. I would hunt in a stand. You would wait for deer to, to migrate to you. This was one of those days. It was like 15 degrees. I had stood in the stand as long as I could stew it. I mean, it was bad. I mean, I had gotten so cold, I was beyond cold. Stuff hurt. And, and, and so I get down, and I, I do some stalk hunting. And stalk hunting, in case you don't know, is where you, you move. But you move a few feet, and you stop and listen. You move a few feet, you listen. You try to go to areas that you know were traveled by deer. Sure enough, man, had not seen anything all day except my breath coming out as I froze to death. And, and I get to stalk hunting. I haven't been moving 15 minutes until I jump up three deer. And, and they were bedded down because it was so cold. They hop up. One of them was an 8 to 10 point. And y'all listen, man, my adrenaline just shot right through the top of my orange hat. Because at 9 or 10 years old, if I were to kill an 8 to 10 point, everybody in my school is going to know. I mean, because that was the thing. I mean, man, back in those days, if you were a kid and you killed a deer, I mean, you told that story for 40 years after that. And so I'm, I'm tracking this deer, and I just could not get a good, clean shot. Every time I would get close, I would see them on the move and, and try to shoot through trees. They finally hit this open field, and boy, I'm just, y'all, you just, you just can't imagine. I'm telling you, it, it was more anticipation than a kid at Christmas. I mean, it, it, boy, I mean, I'm just almost shaking. And it went from the cold at this point. This was adrenaline, just, oh, because I'm thinking now in this open field, I'm going to get a shot. And just about the time I hit the open field with them and I thought I was going to get a really good look at them, they went into what we called in Mississippi a cane thicket. Anybody ever been in a cane thicket? You know, you know what the key word in cane thicket is? Thick. There is nothing like it I have ever walked in in my life. It, it is literally like taking, you know, those bungee straps, those bungee cord straps, hang up about 8,000 of those to their, their most tense their most tense stretching, and try to walk through that. That's what this is. There's nothing like it, literally. They are so closely packed together. Here's the only problem added to the cane thicket. Not only did the deer go in there, when I got in there, I realized it was a slough. Anybody know what a slough is? Okay, this is redneck stuff, y'all. A slough is a swamp, but see, in Mississippi, we don't have swamps. We leave that to the Louisiana rednecks. The Cajuns have swamps. In Mississippi, we have sloughs which is a swamp, it just didn't have alligators in it. That, that's the only difference. But it was 15 degrees, so it's all frozen, right? Until when? I started stepping on it. And as I'm trying to hold a gun, 9, 10 years old, and I've got a 30 alt 6 which is as tall as I am, and I'm having to literally take cane and move it, and the deer are all, I mean, they're just all over me. You can hear them. They're breaking through. <laughs> trying to move, step, <laughs> Not only would I break through what I did not realize, I was breaking through hip high on a nine-year-old. It's 15 degrees. Did I remind you all that? Have I ever told you all I hate winter? Absolutely hate it. <laughs> break through. Water over the top of the boot. Yeah, it's really good. Break through. And the only problem was, okay, so I'm a smart nine-year-old. I'm going to back out and go this way. I just, I, I'm not getting in this stuff, right? Instead of stepping forward, you know what happens when you pull backwards on a, on a boot that is emerged in, in mud? Your foot comes out of it. Yeah. I can't even see it. I know it's in there, but I am not. Y'all listen. Y'all know what it is. It's a man's deal, right? There's no way that 9 or 10-year-old boy was going back to deer camp without his boot. Holding a gun up on one knee, digging in the slough. Y'all ever smelt what slough smells like? 
Yeah. At this point, I could have cared less if a deer had come up and stood beside me. I, it wouldn't have mattered. All I wanted was my boot and out. I did finally get my boot on, but I came to the realization there was no backing out. I had to walk across. Well, that field, that slough was about 100 yards across. It took me about an hour to negotiate that. I got out the other side. I was more exhausted than I think I've ever been in my life, angrier than I've ever been in my life, so angry that I went back to the deer camp, and I took, this is 15 degrees. I took the water hose and sprayed me off. I didn't care. I was that mad. I just... Just, oh, it was awful. But, but here was the thing. Me not walking out of that was simply not an option. Me not walking out was simply not an option. There was no way my daddy was going to have to come get me. There was no way my uncles were going to have to come get me. How did I get out? One foot. One foot. And one foot. Let's take this and let's apply it to the part that I told you to do. I want you to picture your journey right now, whatever your journey is. And I want you to picture, I want you to visualize what your struggle is. And for most of you, that'll take about three seconds because there's the struggle right there, right? I want you to visualize your struggle. And I want you to, I want you to take this challenge with as much respect as I can give it. Because it's not to make light of your challenge. Because I know for many of you, your challenges this week are real. Y'all, I've sat with loved ones as their loved one had just passed away or was near it, and they knew it. I know folks who have gone through surgeries. I know folks whose marriages are starting to unravel and come apart, and they don't know what to do with it. I know some who are just kind of getting back into church world and their spiritual journey has been a wreck. And so my challenge would be the same to every one of us. Keep putting foot forward. Because the option is not quitting. We cannot quit. There is no quitting plan in Scripture. Sometimes there's a slowing down plan, and sometimes there's a getting distracted plan, but there's no quitting plan in Scripture. But to be able to put your feet on the right path, here's the key. It's not just stepping forward, it's thriving forward. How do we get on the right path? Well, number one, we stick with the strategy. You need to come up with the strategy. Y'all, please hear me. If you've battled the same sin issue for years and you've made no progress, but you've done nothing to change your battle except get up the, the, the next day and, okay, Lord, help me not to do this again. I'm, I'm sorry, and you are. You truly are. You're sincerely sorry, but Lord, help me. But you've added nothing to help you not do that sin again. Then you don't have a strategy. Because see, just getting up the next day and doing the same thing all over again, that's not a strategy, and it's a plan that will lead to failure once again. You've got to have a strategy. And so let's say you've got a particular sin issue. Here's what I'm going to challenge you to do to keep your feet moving on the right path. I want you to develop a strategy of accountability. I want you to invest in one person that you trust and share with them, hey, dude, listen, this can't go anywhere. This is life and death stuff to me. This is how personal this is to me. This is my journey. I want you to help me. And then either get a Bible study, get a series of verses, 
get their prayers for you, get reminders from them every 45 minutes, get reminders from them every three hours, get reminders from them twice a week, whatever it may be, to help you get a strategy to defeat this thing. If it is your marriage that is coming apart, here's what I want you to do. Come see me, and then I'm going to get you some help. Because if your marriages fall apart, you do understand that doesn't just impact you and your spouse. It impacts this whole church. Because we're only as strong as you are strong. Because remember, we're one in this together. So if your marriage is struggling, you need to share that. You don't need to keep waking up every day thinking it's just going to get better on its own. Because in case y'all have not noticed, marriage is hard work. And if you're not hard working at it, it will not make it. And that happens to Christians, 58% of them. If you're having financial difficulty and you can't pay your bills, come talk to me. I'm not going to raise you. I'm not going to be your daddy. But this church will come alongside you and help you and help you develop a strategy. Why do you think we got the votes teaching FPU? We want people to learn some financial discipline that would honor the Lord. If emotionally you've got some pain that you can't overcome, come see me. Please hear me. I'm not that type of counselor. But I've got some friends who are, and they will help you. We as a church will help you. We give away thousands of years. Listen to me. In case you don't know this, part of your tithes and offerings, go to, they go to a line item that we budget every year where we help people with their counseling cost. We can't pay them all, but we can get you started. That's what we do as a church. And so again, I want you to get a strategy. Secondly, I want you to build up your defense. Your defense of your faith, knowing what it is you actually believe, but build up your defense so you can keep moving forward. Because if you haven't prepped for the hard times, please hear me, when they come, you bottom out. Too many times we're just surviving and not thriving. What you need to be doing when you're not in the most difficult time ever is getting yourself ready for the most difficult time. You're like, well, pastor, that's a very pessimistic outlook. No, it's not. It's a warrior mindset. If I'm not currently in the fight, I'm prepping myself for the next fight because the next fight is going to come. Number three, it will come. The next sin or the next addiction, the next struggle, the next issue with your spouse, the next issue with your kids, the next issue at work, the next financial difficulty, the next surgery. And please hear me. You ever get one? They just keep coming. They just keep coming. There is a next. There's always a next. And what do we do? We keep putting one foot in front of the other. That next bout of discontent, please hear me, it's coming. Why? Because Satan wants you to be miserable. He wants to rob you of your joy. And God just hates it. Because he designed you to be joyful and thriving, not surviving. He's designed you to thrive, not survive. Number four, consider an alternative. And please, again, let me, let, me, let me clarify. The alternative of quitting is not an alternative. But maybe changing directions a little bit. You know, my wife and I, we've been married 22 years, and everything's just okay. And, but you know, she, if, if you ask her, it could probably be better here. If you ask me, it could probably be better there. But if we just get up every day and... We don't do anything to make that happen. You know what's going to happen? Nothing. Nothing. Consider an alternative. You know, dialogue's a good thing. Dialogue with God is great. 
But dialoguing with other believers is also great. Remember, it's a church, right? It's, it's a collection of people. If you feel kind of stagnant, again, find somebody you trust that's a Christ follower and just get their insight on what you're dealing with. Just get their insight. Doesn't mean you have to do exactly what they prescribe, but if you just get their perspective on it, because you know what? They may have gone through something very similar. They may have never experienced what you're going through yet because they're outside your emotional struggle. They're outside your spiritual struggle because they're outside of that. They may be able to give you some insight that may change and give you an alternative path. I hope, I hope that you will employ this because please hear me, we're not meant to do this journey by ourselves. And let me tell you who's the worst at this. Men. We are the worst. You know why? Because we're fixers. If I can't fix it, what makes me think somebody else can? That is pride that will land you in a hole you can't dig yourself out of, guys. We, we have to have other people. We have to have other people. And so, a couple things. Here's where we're going to close. A couple things. If this morning... You're sitting here and you're saying, Justin, listen, I I get it. I love this. I love this idea of of putting one foot in front of the other. And I would say, good for you. I'm glad you like it. I worked on it all week. But if if that's all you think I just said, you just missed the biggest part of it. You do remember when Derek Redmond went down? How did he finish? His dad. His dad helped him finish. Hear me carefully. This is not about you putting one foot in front of the other. This is about you choosing to get up and try, but yet be very dependent upon Jesus to guide you as you walk. So here's my question. Are you sure you sit here today with Jesus right in the middle of your struggle with you? Or are you exhausted because you're doing it by yourself? Are you here today absolutely convinced that as you are going through this struggle, emotional, physical, financial, stress, sin, whatever it may be, whatever this struggle, this obstacle is, you're having a hard time staying on the path, putting one foot in front of the other, are you absolutely certain you're doing this with Jesus embracing you? I just had a brother last week, just had a brother last week, probably the most difficult suffering he'd ever gone through in his life, looked me dead in the eye and he said, I am not making it. Jesus is carrying me. That's a quote. Are you sure? When that moment comes for you, are you sure Jesus is there to carry you? If you're not certain, but you want to know more. If you're not certain, but you want to be Sure, here's what I'm going to challenge you to do. I want you to trust me on this. If that is you today where you want to know for sure and you don't, as we stand and pray in just a minute, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to walk right over here to these doors where it says exit. Here's why it says exit, because we've got some folks waiting for you, and they're going to meet you there at those doors, and they're going to carry you to a more safe place, a more private place, and they're going to sit down with you in privacy with scriptural material, here's what they're going to show you. They're going to show you how you can know for sure. Not hope, not guess, not wish. How you can know for sure 
that Jesus is carrying you in your difficult moment. They're not going to try to sway you, convince you, get you to sign anything, say any type of prayer, commit to anything. They're just going to open up your mind to what truth is. That's all they want to do. And so if that's you, when we start to pray, I want you to walk straight over there. But there's another group here that are more like me in that you know that Jesus is with you. But maybe this last week, maybe this last week you've tried to carry all of it by yourself. Y'all do know that's a jacked up thing to do. You say jacked up in church. It's an improper thing to do. In case you don't know, you weren't designed to carry your burdens by yourself. In fact, it's, it's a very foolish thing to think that we can. It ends very negatively emotionally every time. Every time. And I am the epitome. I'm the president of that club. The president. And yet, God has designed you to be a part of community. Maybe today in this service, you need to be looking around. And you need to be thinking, that is somebody I can invest in and trust. And I want to incorporate them into my journey. I need, I need that shoulder. Please hear me. It's Jesus, but Jesus does it through us. Jesus does it through community. Maybe you need to reach out for community. And so maybe today that's all you're doing. Maybe today you're just, hey, Lord, listen, this past week has not been exactly what it should have been. I I, I am getting up and I'm trying to fight this sin. I'm trying to get over this struggle. I don't want to just survive. I want to thrive for you. I want people to see how I handle difficulty because that's a great part of my testimony, but I feel like I'm doing it all alone. Show me my helpmate. And it may be your very spouse. Please hear me. I'm not talking about you getting married. But I am talking about you coming together with part of the body of Christ so you can be stronger. Or maybe it's just you just taking a moment just to confess to the Lord, you know what? I haven't put my feet on the path this week. I've been feeling a little bit sorry for myself. I've had this go on. I've had this go on. And, and, and please hear me. That's okay. Please hear me. That's okay. We do this. But it's not okay for you to stay there. Maybe this is the service where you go, okay, enough of that, enough, enough. Satan has had too much fun. No more victim for me. It is okay that my journey is hard because Jesus and his journey was very difficult. I'm going to get up and I'm going to love the Lord better than I loved him yesterday. Maybe that's what it is today. Just a renewed commitment that I'm going to put my foot on the path. Lord, I've been standing still, enough standing still, time to get moving. Time to be active again. So whatever it is the Lord calls you to do, as we start to sing in just a minute, man, if you want to sing, great, but maybe you're just processing. And you're asking the Lord to show you a helpmate within this church. Maybe it's confessing to the Lord how you haven't been on the path because maybe there's been the patting yourself on the back moment. Or or maybe, or maybe it's just a renewed commitment to get after it. No more victim. No more victim. I'm going to get after it again. I'm going to be faithful to my task. Whatever it is, let the Lord speak to your heart.